0: Welcome to the Creativity at Work podcast, hosted by the School of Business at Virginia Commonwealth University. Welcome to another edition of Creativity at Work, sponsored by the VCU School of Business here in Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ken Kahn, the Senior Associate Dean for the School of Business. And joining me today is Marcus Baer, who is an Associate Professor of Organizational Behavior at Washington University in St. Louis. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Ken. And I should clarify the Olin School of Business at yes, Washington University. Right. That's right.
1: So, thanks for joining us. Tell us a little, little bit about your background. Um, there might be a little bit longer than you would like, uh, but maybe the listeners will sit through it. Um, so, I'm a psychologist, and when I was looking to pick a topic um, for my master's thesis, so I'm a, at the time it was a master's degree in psychology, I was a big fan of the X Files. I'm not sure if you've seen yep. the X-Files. So I was obsessed with Scully right? yeah, scullion Mold. And uh, so there is a famous experiment. And in fact, we had a Dutch physicist on uh, the faculty in my University of Gießen in the clinical psychology side. And he was interested in paranormal phenomena. And there's a very famous experiment. It's called the Gunsfeld experiment in which you and I, for example, would transfer a visual image to one another, even if we are separated physically. So we're in two different rooms. So imagine you go into one room, I go into another, you relax, you get, uh, we use ping pong balls over your eyes, and you um, you just describe what you see. Now, if you look at a white surface for a while, your eyes will start producing has like its own um, activity, and so it will start to create images. You have seen as if you stare at a white wall for too long. At the same time, I'm in a different room. I'm trying to send you an image, and you're just in a relaxed chair telling me what you see or what you think you perceive. Um, and I have four images. I can pick one. You have a duplicate set, and at the end of the session, you would have to tell the experimenter which of those four images um, did I send you. Now, if the hit rate is larger than 25%, it means there's an effect. So the uh, faculty was interested in replicating this. So he hired myself and a friend of mine, and we're doing this for a master thesis. Now, my friend uh, said publicly that he doesn't believe in the effect. At the time, the, uh, the effect was about 27%. So it was 2% above chance. In our experiment, it worked. In fact, I was the receiver, and my friend had, uh, had a Buddha statue. And um, so I would sing, and I would all things that came to my mind, and eventually I said, I see a fat monk. And, uh, and that was the image that he had sent me. So despite that, my friend said he doesn't believe in it, and he thought it's an artifact of the images. A lot of the images in that experiment had flowy images of clouds and oceans, and those are the ones that typically come to mind. So he thought it artificially inflates the hit rate. So my uh, the advisor at the time thought, if we don't believe in the effect, it won't show up. So he fired my colleague and after a year's worth of work and I was devastated because I just lost the years of time and I couldn't find someone else to do the work with. So what I did, uh, I moved over to a completely different area. So I left clinical psychology. In fact, the clinical psychology faculty told me to leave the department because they said there's no bad blood which I didn't understand why, but anyway, so I went to IO Psych, and there was one faculty member who um, everyone said, don't work with him because he is very hard, he wants you to publish in English and all these sorts of things, and uh, I thought, given the bad experience I had in clinical psychology, I said, I will go to this person because I don't believe it can be any more difficult, and that set me on the path to becoming or studying creativity, ultimately, uh, because I worked on personal initiative and change and innovation. And then when I came to Illinois, where I did my PhD, this is where I picked up the interest in creativity. So that's kind of the trajectory. It came out of a completely different area, and there was this external shock, which forced me into something that I wasn't seeking out. So kind of the topic found me, I would say, rather than I found the topic, if that makes any sense. Mm yeah.
0: So Pro- Professor Baer is joining us here in Richmond as a visiting scholar. We have a program where we bring in leading researchers to talk about creativity and this notion of how creativity affects a business. Can you talk a little bit about your research and what are some of your findings?
1: So I study creativity pretty broadly, and uh, what I've learned is that Many people do endorse creativity in the abstract. Uh, So this is one commonality also in the classroom that people all are in favor of creative ideas, but very few people are willing to tolerate the process that goes into producing those ideas and uh, tolerate the outcome as well. And you see this also in the publication process, which ends up producing work that is pretty incremental uh, by the very design of the systems that we have created. Uh, For example, some of my early work found that time pressure... Uh, which many people believe forces you to do your best work is not very useful for our creativity. It turns out some pressure is good, um, but having too much pressure when you're trying to do creative work is counterproductive uh, because it forces you. That's the um, assumption that we make. And that's kind of like what we found in the data is that you end up doing the same type of work um, because that's the most likely to get done in time. And so people, I think I talked this morning to um, Alex about this, that people mistake oftentimes goal progress and getting work done, quantity of effort for quality. So they may say, I get a lot of work done under time pressure, but they don't really consider the quality of that effort, whether or not it's creative. Another finding that I um, observed is that people believe competition between teams is a good thing. So I studied um, teams that were working under competitive conditions, trying to obtain an incentive. So we uh, uh, varied the incentive size and uh, we also varied who was in the team. So would men and women respond differently to being pitted against one another? And what we found is that from a creative standpoint for men, incentives that pit teams against one another work pretty well as expected. Uh, for women, we found the opposite effect. They were most creative and, in fact, more creative than teams composed of men when there was no competition between teams at all. Um, and their creativity declined as competition increased. So at, under competitive circumstances, it turned out that uh, teams of men were much more creative. Under non-competitive circumstances, it turned out that teams of women were more creative. which resonates with work on um, group Intelligent, which had found that oftentimes the percentage of women in a team corresponds or is reflective of a construct that's called group uh, intelligence, partly because women communicate differently. Um, So they're more collaborative in nature, and we see some of that. So oftentimes the same incentives or mechanisms that we believe produce a lot of work, uh, a lot of work of the same nature, they do not work the same way Uh, for creative work or for all individuals. Uh, So we do find some differences between men and women, uh, men and women. Um, we find some differences in terms of the functionality of an incentive or time pressure, for example. Um, I found the same effects for rewards. Mostly what you uh, what I find, and I think this is consistent with previous research, is that people who enjoy what they're doing and not mess around too much uh, with anything other than the work itself, that is what is a good way of approaching creative work. So there has to be some interest in the nature of the work, meaning, challenge, being able to make progress, knowing what should be perhaps uh, the outcome. Uh, and all that makes it more likely that people give uh, produce good ideas. And then we don't have to mess around with incentive structure, compensation, measurement of performance. And I think that's very difficult when it comes to creative work, if that makes any sense.
0: Definitely. So based on the research you've done, and you were actually here this morning talking to some managers, what are some recommendations that you would have for managers with regards to creativity at work?
1: That's a very good question. Um, The first one is that People desire this, but they have a tough time tolerating the process of creativity. And there is a study that showed this quite nicely even in, uh, among students. So if you're a teacher and you ask teachers what they desire in students at the beginning of the semester, for example, they say, I love students who question me, right, who are nonconformist, who ask a lot of questions, assumptions, and so forth, and test those assumptions. But then you look at who does good in that classroom and it's oftentimes the kids that are most conformist. So it is very difficult to say, or there's a difference between people saying, "I'll, I'll enjoy creativity. And even with good intentions, they have a tough time end up liking people who do question the norms, who do push, right, who are not satisfied, who do have to maintain uncertainty because creativity is ultimately uncertain. So, you know, I have a good idea and you may not know, it's good for a while. So you have to tolerate that process of not knowing and of supporting people nevertheless. I don't think most managers in organizations um, do that really well because I think ultimately organizations are oftentimes designed with the intent to reduce such uncertainty. And so we put measures and processes around things, but uh, that kills the creativity. So the systems uh, believe in the norms and the culture that we're trying to create in organizations that works for efficiency and creativity oftentimes at odds. So balancing this is really tricky, but I do think uh, the easy ways. So you have to give people some form of freedom. They need to know that they can try things out without the risk of, being punished for failure. So it's not normalizing failure. There was a nice study that came out that made this differentiation between normalizing failure and learning from it. The point is not to normalize saying failure is normal as part of this process to say, well, perhaps that's the case. But what do we learn from these failures, as long as these turn into learning opportunities, that's really important. Um, So that's certainly a second among saying giving people more autonomy but then also opportunity to screw things up and then recover from that. So I think um, it's kind of like being raising a child. So you want to give them an opportunity to explore, but making sure that they feel if they fall, there's someone there to help them back on their feet. Um, But I don't think that's how we run organizations in many instances.
0: We had a discussion last night and also today about constraints and creativity. Do you want to make any comments on that?
1: I think that's another misconception perhaps uh, about uh, constraints is that people believe that when I ask you to be the creative, the greatest gift I can give you is to um, tell you any ideas possible. And in fact, I want any and all ideas from you. In business is oftentimes described as the blue sky thinking, which is a hated uh, term. And partly because I think it overwhelms people. People have trouble, when there are no boundaries around your thinking. And so the greatest gift you can give someone is to alleviate some of the existing uh, uh, constraints, perhaps, but then offering new ones. Um, And this way is a way of guiding people through this search for a good idea or for the creation of a good idea. People are not trained to do that because very few people train creativity. In organizations, we already talked about that, there's a constant battle between creativity and efficiency, and efficiency typically wins out, I believe. And so creativity is one of the few uh, skills where we believe people have an innate ability and they can exercise it given the right conditions. Uh, And oftentimes, then people, managers, give very little thought. So I do believe uh, a constraint can be quite helpful. To say there's one thing I would not like you to do, so let's say I gave this example earlier. There's dog food and you would say, what if the most prominent ingredient that we have in our dog food is no longer available, right? Because we would run out of it or it would be unavailable for any other reason, how else would we produce it? That can steer you in a very novel direction. It is very different from saying, what would the dog food of the future look like? Um, and I believe it's much, diffic- much more difficult for people to answer the latter question than the former. Uh, So I think that's a constraint can be a gift. Not too many constraints because then it becomes indeed constraining. Yeah.
0: So have one more question. We Mm -hmm. ask all our guests to answer the question of what is the most creative thing that you've done in the past year?
1: So this one I actually thought about uh, a bit.
0: We actually uh, let our guests know that we're going to ask that question. Yes. So this gave you a little chance. So what do you what do you come up with?
1: Come up with. So when I teach creativity, especially when we talk about the cultural norms that support creative work, uh, which is an environment in which people are forgiving of mistakes. They have each other's back. Um, They are very in tune with what other people are producing. I oftentimes invite a uh, improvisational instructor from Improvisational Theatre And so I've taken a number of classes. And so I think the most creative act myself is I started to teach those classes myself. This does not mean that I have any sort of improvisational gifts. But uh, over time, I started to realize the value in teaching this more broadly. And so I started to do about one to two hours of improvisational training uh, with my students. And um, improvisational theater is interesting because most people assume that you have to be really funny on the spot. And if you're not funny and have the sort of uh, funny insight uh, prompted on stage, you couldn't be doing this. And it's just the opposite. Uh, In improv, funny moments oftentimes exist because you do something unexpected and another person responds to this in an unexpected manner. So none of this is planned. And the only way this works is if you know that other people will have your back. I'll give you an example. Let's say you, you know, start a scene and you're going and you don't know the next line. What you practice in improv is that there is someone out there who's waiting to jump in to your rescue. So everyone out there is watching, not necessarily hoping for you to screw up. But saying if that person doesn't know the next line or you can see that they're struggling with what to say next, you know that there are numerous people out there trying to jump in to help you out. And they know that you will reciprocate because when they struggle, you will jump out. So Amy Poehler did this. Uh, the legend has it that when she was at Second City in, um, in Chicago, Before they go on stage, they physically touch each other's back and said, I have your back. Uh, Which is very different, if you notice, from how we typically run meetings where we a person maybe produces a creative idea and we immediately ask them questions about it. They not only have to come up with an idea, but they also have to defend it. And we're trying to find the one hole in their idea, which is very different. Our contrast is with the idea. Someone says something and you immediately, when you see that they don't know, they haven't fully thought it out, you jump in to help. This provides an environment in which people can be creative because now unexpected collaborations can happen. And this is oftentimes where the good stuff is. It's not necessarily because one person had an idea. It's because multiple people contribute to the same idea. And then in unexpected manners because I have no control over what you did prior to me coming on stage and I respond. And if what I say doesn't make any sense, I know another person will jump in to help me out. That kind of culture is very supportive of creativity, and I'm trying to do that by teaching very basic improvisational techniques myself in class. Um, I would recommend to our listeners that this is a wonderful way of kind of loosening up a little bit and also learning how to pay attention. Uh, one technique that we also do, and I'm not sure if you're doing this right now, is you if you if want if you're trying to really pay attention to someone, is you listen down to the last word, and you don't formulate your answer until you heard the last word and you try to formulate your answer beginning with the last word that the person said. So you would have to start with "set," for example and which forces you to not think and judge a person's idea and already think about how to respond until the very end when the idea is formulated so you can give the other person your full attention. It also makes it difficult for you to jump ahead. And look particularly smart by having thought about all the problems in what I just said, right? And you can poke and uh, highlight these holes. So that might be one of the most creative things. Um,
0: Dr. Marcus Bear, Associate Professor of Organizational Behavior at the Olin School of Business, Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for joining us. And thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. And for everyone listening, thanks for joining us. Until next time. Thank you for joining us on the Creativity at Work podcast. To learn more about the Virginia Commonwealth University School of Business and our vision to drive the future of business through the power of creativity, visit us at business.vcu.edu or follow us on social media. Also, you can let the creativity come to you by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Until next time, keep up the creativity at work.